Welcome to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Today, together with Institute for Voices of Liberty and the New Iran Group, we bring you a conversation with His Excellency Ambassador David Siegel. We will talk about the recent escalations in the Middle East between Israel and terror group Hamas. We'll also talk about the impending Iran nuclear deal, the reactions from Europe and the Middle East. But before we get to our discussion, I'd like to call upon Institute for Voices of Liberty President, the Honorable Bijan Kian, to say a few words. Mr. Kian is a twice-confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama, and serving as the deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, also an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient and globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. Mr. Kian, please take the floor. Well, thank you, Lisa, for uh, doing what you do all the time, the front lines. Uh, I am honored today to welcome our dear friend, His Excellency, Ambassador David Siegel. It is a very, very timely moment now in a world where America is treating her enemies like friends and her friends like enemies. It is such an opportune time to welcome you, Mr. Ambassador. We're honored to have you. And I'd like to, uh, to thank you also on behalf of the members of the board of directors of the Institute for Voices of Liberty. Of course, Sam Kermanian, my colleague, a co-founder of the Institute, needs no introduction. I have Dr. Mort Envari, who's a member of the board, former senior official at the Department of the Army. I have Dr. Amir Hamidi, former senior official at the Department of Justice, former diplomat. And uh, <clears throat> I have uh, Professor Damon Gouldriz, from The Hague, the Netherlands is joining us. Dr. Peyman Sadef, who's the CIO of the uh, General Services Administration, and Mr. Benjamin Saram, who is a former California official. I'm also honored to welcome members of our advisory council, uh, Rear Admiral Gary White, retired United States Navy, Mr. Scott Edelman, my friend, former diplomat at the State Department, my friend, Mr. Uh, Joshua Charles, who uh, was writing speeches for Vice President Pence up until recently. Uh, Christine McNulty, my dear friend, Steve Apatow, Dr. Laura Benoit, uh, Colonel Phil Waldron, and I, I believe uh, Adam Lovinger and Michael Pregent are also uh, on the line. If I missed uh, anyone, uh, please uh, forgive me. I cannot see the list of attendees, but welcome. Ambassador Siegel, and uh, we are delighted to have you. Thank you for joining us. The Institute for Voices of Liberty is proud to present you today, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Lisa, back to you. Thank you, Mr. Kian. I'd now like to introduce you to our guest, Ambassador David Siegel, president of the European Leadership Network, or ELNET, and former Israeli diplomat involved in foreign policy formulation at the highest levels, including as Consul General to the Southwest United States. That's where many of you may know him from. Uh, he served as Chief of Staff to Israel's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Director of the Foreign Ministries International Organizations Department, and Chief of Staff to three of Israel's ambassadors to the United States. He has an MA and master's degree in inter international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and undergraduate degree in political science from the University of, De of Vermont. Uh, and last but not least, a good friend, colleague, and someone I'm honored to know and to work with again. Thank you, Ambassador Siegel, for being with us and giving us your time. 
Thank you. Thank you, Lisa and uh, Bijan. And uh, thank you all uh, for the great honor of being here. I'm truly humbled. This is uh, quite an august group and wonderful to be with you. I wanted to start, um, I know we, we planned this event a while ago. Uh, we wanted to talk about the Iran nuclear deal and, and you know, we, we would have never have guessed, I mean, we could have guessed because it happens every four or five years, right? But we wouldn't have guessed that it would have happened uh, in the past 10 days where we have uh, this conflict unfold again between Israel and Hamas like it did in the past uh, two weeks. Uh, you know, repetitive, right? Um, you've lived through so many of these. And uh, I'd like to get your assessment on this most recent conflict. How is it similar and different from previous escalations? And most importantly, uh, what are the longstanding ramifications for each side this time around? Uh, thank you. Uh, this, this has been a very, very intense round. Unfortunately, we've seen four or five of these rounds with Hamas since Hamas forcibly took over uh, the Gaza Strip and throughout uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, for rooftops, uh, by the way, in many cases, and took over. Uh, this round lasted 11 days. It was uh, totally provoked by Hamas. We believe for internal Palestinian political reasons, it was a confluence of events that made it very uh, auspicious for them to do this. They uh, surprised Israel by firing seven rockets at Jerusalem. This is where it started. And over the, the next 11 days, uh, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, which is a direct proxy of Iran, fired over 4,300 rockets uh, at Israel, 3,800 of which uh, uh, reached Israel, and uh, many of them were intercepted by Iron Dome, a certain percentage fell in the ocean. But it's also important to remember that around 700 of those rockets fell inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, but the point is that this was a very intensive round. The, the uh, previous round in 2014 lasted 51 days. They fired a little bit more over those 51 days. Uh, on average, they fired 100 rockets a day at Israel then, 400 rockets at Israel a day now. Uh, so we, the, the ferocity of it was, was something we've never seen uh, before. And what this means is that over the last seven years, since 2014, they rearmed. And despite all the quote-unquote efforts of the international community to allow in humanitarian aid, uh, but not allow in those items that they would use for their rocketry and their armament, uh, failed, totally failed. And uh, so, so this is where we are. I think strategically how this is different is that more and more you're hearing the term regional multi-front war. Iran's strategy has been to encircle Israel from all sides, also internally. And they now see this as a major strategic success. So they claim in their ability, if you think about it, there was a UAV fired by Iran via Syria through Jordan into Israel that was intercepted. There were multiple rockets fired from Lebanon into Israel by Palestinian groups, but with a, a, a nod and wink of, of Hezbollah. There was rocket fire from Syria um, and, and so on. So this was a multi-fronted effort. And more and more we hear in speeches, Nasrallah's latest uh, uh, speech and other speeches and uh, columnists that are very close to Hezbollah in Iran are talking about more and more of a regional war against Israel that will be multi-front by the axis of resistance. This is the major strategic development coming out of uh, this 11 days in Gaza. You know, how is it that, you know, we 
we have Iran's regime claiming this support and, and vice versa, right? Exactly as you said. In a dozen different ways, we saw, you know, uh, Iran saying, it was us, it was us. We're the ones who supplied them with the weapons. It was us. We want the credit. We really want the credit. And likewise, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah and Lebanon, praising Iran openly, you know, thank you for the funding, the weaponry. But yet, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on record during this conflict that, quote, I don't have anything to offer on whether there is Iranian involvement or not in what's taking place. And he said this at a joint press conference with the Australian foreign minister, so openly. Can you connect some of the dots here for us? I mean, what is the extent of Iran's involvement in Gaza? And how did we get to a place where they're openly and proudly bragging about this relationship? Well, this is, this is uh, unbelievable, and it's very, very dangerous for the future of the region and the, and the future of, uh, of stability in the Middle East, uh, because this is an active attempt to uh, consolidate the axis of resistance. And remember that Hamas had big problems with the civil war in Syria. Uh, there were the, their, their Sunni allies being uh, butchered and massacred, uh, and they didn't like it. But now there's an effort to converge uh, this group. And, you know, it's not tomorrow but it's something that Israeli military planners and strategists are looking at very carefully. I have to remind you that Iran continues, and, and since the JCPOA in 2015, both with the money, but maybe more importantly, with the strategic pass that they received from the international community, that in return for the agreement, they could pretty much do what, as they please in the region. They entered embedded themselves in Syria in a massive, massive way over those years and continued arming all these groups. Now. In these 11 days, this specific conflict, since we've been able to block the smuggling tunnels by and large from Egypt uh, uh, and from the ocean, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad basically did this domestically, which makes it even more dangerous. They've received the technology and capability and funding from Iran uh, to, to create this weaponry that is so dangerous for the future of the region. So, you know, uh, we, we do need to connect the dots. Uh, and whether or not Iran was directly involved or is taking credit for political strategic reasons. The point is, this is how it's being perceived now in the Middle East. The next war will be a multi-fronted war uh, orchestrated by Iran's allies against Israel. And the weaker Israel becomes, mm -hmm. the stronger the Iranian regime will become. And let's let's continue building upon this because you, you make some great points about how uh, there's there's some realignment going on, right? And the world has, has uh, perhaps delivered its most damning criticism of, of of Israel this time around. How does that then affect Israel standing in the Middle East uh, and, and globally? So more specifically, uh, we're seeing you know a zero sum approach in the court of public opinion, right? Uh, Palestinians are victims, therefore Israel is bad. So with that configuration, which divides the world into two, you're either with us or you're with them, does Iran's regime then gain more sympathy, particularly at the negotiating table because the Palestinians won more sympathy? So uh, again, you know, we're, we're looking, we'll, we'll talk about the JCPOA, I'm sure, in a moment. And they, uh, you know, the negotiators just opened their fifth round and it appears uh, that they're very close to an agreement. And, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But in terms of Israel's strategic standing, which is also very important here, the last few years have been very good years. The, these are the years of, of, of the Abraham Accords, of the maximum pressure on Iran, which, which was not just about sanctions pressure. It was also about looking strategically at, at the region as it's changing and encouraging that change. Normalization between not only Israel and the Arab countries, but also Israel and Southern Europe and the connections between the two uh, made Israel much, much stronger. And militarily, 
uh, Israel also showed in this, in this latest round tremendous military capabilities and power. But in terms of the perception war, uh, this, is, this is a very dangerous moment because you know, uh, the, the UN just passed a resolution in Geneva. By the way, all of the Europeans abstained. All of the Europeans abstained, uh, which is a very interesting development, including France, which is a position that we have not seen before. Uh, and we can talk about that. Europe seems to be moving closer to Israel. The Arab moderate countries are moving close to Israel and Iran has by and large been isolated. This is an attempt uh, uh, on, on the part of Iran to reassert uh, its power and its uh, alliance using the JCPOA in that process, hoping for world legitimacy, both in terms of its regional activities and ultimately in terms of its nuclear, nuclear capabilities, which is so very dangerous. Yeah, you touched upon uh, actually my next two questions. Let's start with the first one is to say uh, the the signing of the Abraham Accords and, and more so in its implementation, right? We saw an, an, a real, um, you know, uh, interest aligned uh, treaty that um, has has done tremendously for both the, the Arab nations that are involved and in Israel itself. And we're seeing the, the modern Arab world realign itself with Israel and, and, and say, look, we want economic opportunity and technological advancements, and we get it. We'd rather move forward for a future of prosperity rather than to be held back by our antiquated uh, animosities. But how will this new Middle East or the new friends that Israel um, has gained, uh, how will their reaction to the JCPOA be different than what it was in 2015? Well, I think the normalization process has been very important, uh, but it's also important to understand and remember that it's not completed. Um, Israel still has not reached a full accord uh, or an open accord with Saudi Arabia. Of course, none of this would have happened without uh, Saudi acceptance of, of the other countries, Bahrain and UAE and Morocco and, and Sudan and so on. Uh, but but what, what we need to see is more encouragement by the world and the international community and certainly by the United States of these normalization accords and this process because it's important for stabilizing the region. Um, the problem with the JCPOA again it's both the nuclear side, the regional side, and the message to these countries uh, in the region. The normalization isn't enough to stop Iran. Uh, uh, we need to encourage that normalization and we need to help these countries uh, strengthen the, their capabilities. Right now, Israel has been the one out in the open opposing uh, uh, Iran's threat militarily and, 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 and in terms of uh, uh, public opinion, uh, and certainly taking a stand on the nuclear accord. Uh, Israel has been out front where the other countries sort of take a, a secondary or, or low profile role, but that role is still there. It's simply not enough yet. Uh, and to follow up on Saudi Arabia, before Donald Trump and, and uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner left the White House, we had heard from, from both of them several times saying that there is a queue of several nations and several, let's say how, five to seven, I don't know, um, that, that are interested in, in signing on to the Abraham Accords as well. And we are all under the impression that Saudi Arabia is, of course, one of those nations. Uh, we've heard nothing about this from, from this White House. We've actually even seen them shy away from the terminology of, us, of using the, the, the term Abraham Accords. Um, what has happened? Has, has Saudi Arabia backed off? Have they shied away from the idea? Uh, or are we going to see a continuation of this with or without the United States? I think the American role is very important here and encouraging these countries to do more and to take a stand and to take the risks to come together is going to be very, very important. Uh, and we're seeing very interesting potential in the region. It's not just the Arab world and Israel, it's also Southern Europe, it's mm -hmm. the Eastern Mediterranean countries, 
It's those that see uh, Turkey as a problem, as well as Iran as a problem. There is a, a broad coalition of countries coming together, but that coalition needs to be solidified and encouraged. It could be military, it could be economic, and it could also work for stability for the future of that part of the world. Yeah, what's, what's tremendous about your experiences is um, I actually got to, to know you as uh, in being in Los Angeles and being consul general to uh, the Southwest United States. But I know you obviously have um, tremendous amount of um, uh, political experience, both working in the Middle East in the United States and now dealing with Europe. Uh, and I want you to kind of um, you know, take a moment to tell us, uh, I mean, people don't have access to these reactions that come out of Europe. All we hear is a very oversimplified um, headline about how the European Europeans are incredibly and overly eager to get back into the JCPOA. Uh, for the first hours of the Biden administration, they thought, you know, it's game on. Um, where do we sign? Let's let's remove the sanctions and, and just jump right back into this. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've been privy to many of these important and sensitive conversations uh, in Europe and with the Europeans regarding this. Why are they so uh, eager to blindly get back into the deal? No questions asked. So I, you know, there are many people on this call uh, that are very honored uh, personalities that have been involved in, in international politics and diplomacy. And in, if we remember in 2015, uh, it was countries like France that actually pushed hard uh, for very strong terms. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't, they didn't uh, get their way throughout, but they certainly advocated for a stronger position. Uh, we're seeing that now as well. The E3 in Europe may not be very clear publicly about what they're saying. But if you look at the, the real red line here, it's, it's a year from breakout. So the ability to keep Iran one year away from uh, uh, stockpiling, you know, enough enriched uranium for a bomb, for one bomb. Um, and, and, you know, there is a, 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 a series of requirements that are very technical. For example, you know that Iran right now is, is demanding to go beyond the agreement of 2015 when they were allowed to only, uh, you know, uh, uh, implement uh, IR1 centrifuges. They like to go to IR4 and go to, you know, more advanced centrifuges that can quicken the breakout time, shorten the, the, the breakout time. And, and all of this, you know, feeds into the formula about what does it mean a one year from a nuclear uh, 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 a nuclear capability. And it's a formula, it's a mathematical formula. It's the number of centrifuges, it's the type of centrifuges, how advanced are they, how quickly can they enrich, what are your stockpiles? And then, you know, you put it into the, into the calculator and you come out with an amount of time, which is your breakout period. Um, and, and we see the Europeans, especially those behind the scenes that are advocating for this, being tough on those technical issues right now. And in the fifth round, it's fairly clear that the American sanctions will be they're calling it suspended, not canceled, but su suspended so that they can be renewed, but lifted. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not clear what the Iranian position is going into the fifth round. The assessment is that they will reach a deal very soon. But to your question about Europe, uh, both in 2015 and now, there's a European position that, that is, is a strong position on the technical side of, of the requirements of Iran. But we're, in a larger sense, we're seeing Europe change. And this gives me hope because Europe is adjacent to the Middle East. Unlike the United States that is far away and it can pick and choose to pivot here, pivot there, uh, have energy independence, pull out of the region. The Europeans can't pull out of the region. They're part of the region. They're adjacent to the region. Everything happening in the Middle East 
affects the streets of Paris directly. So that if you look at the mood in Paris today, for example, you see a much more conservative assessment of radicalism, of Islamism uh, in, in, in places like, like France, but also look at the German position. It's been very strong in support of Israel's right to self-defense um, against the ICC, the international courts, uh, you know, attempt in, in see it in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Many, many other aspects, ban Hezbollah. And by the way, 12 European countries have banned Hezbollah. The latest has been Austria, right. which stood up and told Zarif not to come. when He complained that they put uh, an Israeli flag in solidarity on a government uh, you know, building, and they did not back down. So we're seeing encouraging signs in Europe, not one side, not one way, but encouraging signs of change, that it's a continent, a continent that understands, or certain countries that understand what's at stake, and that the Middle East, if the radicalism is allowed to be encouraged, it will affect them too, and this is where they become natural allies in this process. Wonderful. I mean, that, that's that's uh, good news for, for all of us if they're coming to their senses with this about faces, as you uh, outlined. Um, so they're meeting again in Vienna. We're on round five. Um, and so far, Iran has agreed to another month of inspections, uh, while news also comes out that they're at 63% uranium enrichment. Um, do you think there will be a deal at the end of this round? We're also looking at uh, elections coming up in Iran. The mullahs don't want to go home empty-handed, right? They've got to save face some in some capacity. Uh, give us an update. What do we know about the talk so far? And between bad and worse, what will be different this time around than it was in 2015? Well, uh, you know, we, we should be very concerned about this process. It's, it's very quick. Um, there seems to be more of an American uh, willingness to lift sanctions uh, than an Iranian willingness to actually agree to terms that are minimal terms. Uh, and I've laid out some of that. Uh, there's a question of what to do with the IR six, seven, eights, and nines, which are 50 times uh, you know, more efficient. These, these uh, uh, developments that, that are basically in violation of the accord. And the question is, how do you go back to an accord uh, when uh, so much has changed in terms of the facts on the ground. Now, you also have to remember that, uh, you know, uh, some of us have some access to the archives that were taken out of uh, Iran. And we know, and there's a very interesting book now out by David Albright in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. that talks about the material from the archives that were taken away from Iran. And according to them, there are more or less 21 suspect nuclear sites that the IAEA has not been given access to that it needs to inspect uh, where suspicious activities have taken place. Now we know because the indications are there, there is uranium enrichment um, uh, uh, prints there that need to be investigated and Iran is not allowing full access to the IAEA. So some can argue that Iran fulfilled the minimal requirements of the JCPOA, but Iran has been very far from fulfilling its obligations to the IAEA uh, and, and under the N NPT, and that needs to be uh, taken on, uh, uh, you know, in a very, very strong way. So we believe that the IAEA process with Iran must be linked to the new agreement. The new agreement will is not enough to stand on its own to, to stop Iran. There's not adequate inspections. There's too much, you know, outstanding issues, um, you know, the possible military dimensions of PMD, which means the, the, the secret underground military-related activities uh, that Iran engaged in and that politically, for political reasons in which the, the case was shut in 2015, despite a very damning IEA report about the very 
the very issue, and it was all swept aside in the in the big, you know, sweep, the big move to sign the agreement. We don't want to see that happen again. There is too much that is it's happening uh, without accountability right now. You know, but can you break this down for us? Because it seems like the world's not getting the, the way that you're the way that you're outlining this. What's the bottom line? What is the danger of leaving Iran's regime on this one yard line or the threshold of, of nuclear capability? And, you know, what does it mean for the Iranian people? What does it mean for the region? What does it mean for the world? You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's the strategic side of this. You know, if Iran is if the JCPOA goes back, if we go back to where we were in 2015, it means basically that Iran becomes a nuclear threshold state. That within 10 years, with all of the sunset provisions, Iran will be uh, enabled with international, full international legitimacy to enrich uranium at an industrial capability and to be weeks away, not a year away, but weeks away from a nuclear capability and no one will be able to stop uh, this regime at that point. Uh, so, and what that means is that it will launch Two, two very, very dangerous uh, uh, processes in the Middle East. One will be a nuclear arms race where Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, other countries, maybe even Egypt, will embark on their own nuclear programs in response to what the world allowed Iran to do. But it will also mean that Israel, that cannot live with that kind of a prospect, uh, will be pushed towards a military option. So what will happen, it's very dangerous because the outside powers outside of the Middle East will look at this as a tolerable situation. This is wonderful. We've achieved our agreement and our aims. And we'll you know, talk about a longer and stronger agreement sometime in the future. Uh, where the leverage is on that is it's highly questionable and no one can really answer that, that question. We can talk about that. But inside the region, Iran becoming a step away from a nuclear weapon means that the Middle East goes nuclear and that Israel is forced into a military option that no one wants to see. No. You know, um, what's unfortunate about this current woke movement that we're living in is, you know, people uh, that are very low information um, try to chime in on these very critical foreign policy issues like, you know, between Hamas and Israel. It was Palestine, you know, Palestinian lives matter. They don't, they couldn't even place, you know, Palestinian territories or Israel on a map. Or in the case of the Iran deal, you know, of course, kumbaya, go forward, appeasement, let's move forward with the deal. Why not? You know, you have groups like Code Pink actually taking tours of people to, to Iran. Um, it makes no sense. But the fortunate side of this woke movement is that the Iranian people are also having a woke mo mo moment. And for them, the people that I interview, their woke movement means, you know, they understand that it's their money that's being poured into Hamas and into Gaza and into, into uh, the Houthis in Yemen and into Iraq and Syria and the list goes on. Um, they also are telling us we'll, we'll, we'll take on the sanctions if it means something better for us in the long run. You know, don't sit with, I, I get tweets all the time. Don't, you know, tell, the, tell your government not to sit down at the negotiation table with these mullahs. We don't want a nuclear deal, even though it means something for them and their country. They understand that this government is very different. Uh, my point being, we have, you know, 80 million people on our side as an ally in stopping the regime. We also have bipartisan support in Congress and Senate, you know, clusters of, of senators and, and, and representatives who have been writing letters, who have been trying to stop uh, our administration from moving forward with a deal, but yet it's falling on deaf ears. How can we stop this or at least have a chance at curbing the threat, which is the Iranian regime. Oh, it's, uh, it, it, this is a very dangerous process, and you know I can tell you that tactically the uh, Israeli operation was very successful, but strategically, in terms of the perceptions, 
we're in a very dangerous moment. We talked about how the region uh, sees it, and now you're talking about how the international community sees all of this. And we need to fight back. We need to be accurate with our information. Uh, I'm not here to tell you that, you know, uh, that the Americans are totally wrong, but I'm here to tell you that there are important things that need to be insisted on. Uh, that if there are 21 nuclear sites in which Iran engaged in, um, you know, secretive military uh, research, that is, that is an issue that the world needs to know about. And in this woke era that we're in, it is very difficult. There's no denying that. But we need to work on both sides of the aisle, like you said. This has to be a bipartisan issue if we're talking about the United States. In Europe, um, it, is, it, is, it is well understood that Iran is a threat, certainly to the southern states that are closer, that are in the missile range, uh, that, include, that, that includes France, and includes Germany. Um, there's a lot of discussions behind the scenes about what needs to be done. So I think, you know, this is not a lost battle. It's just become much more complex, much more driven by social media and by wokeism, as you, as you mentioned. And we're seeing it every day. It's, it, it's very, very strategically dangerous uh, to all of us. And, and first and foremost, to the people of Iran, because the stronger this regime becomes, the closer it gets to nuclear weapons, um, there's no stopping them. Right. Thank you so much. Well, this uh, concludes my questions and my the, the portion of, of our interview, but we have a Q&A um, section right now and I've received uh, questions beforehand. I've selected a few uh, and I will ask you those right now. Um, let's start with, because we actually covered some, some of these in, in your answers, so I don't want it to be repetitive, but um, this is a, a thoughtful question. Uh, some people believe that the Islamic Republic will proceed on the, to the brinks of de developing a nuclear weapon, but stop short of actually building one. The reasoning they offer is that the Islamic Republic wants, to, wants the blackmail value, the threat of, of building a bomb, um, which it believes is greater than the value of the bomb itself which they know they can't use without destroying themselves. What is your opinion on this? Well, blackmail is certainly part of the tactic and we're seeing it right now. Uh, the fact that uh, the IAEA is being denied uh, the camera footage of what is happening in sites that need to be inspected uh, under all these international arms control conventions uh, and it's not taking place and that Iran just agreed out of its good heart, the Iranian regime to extend it by another month uh, but what they're basically saying is if you don't lift sanctions on us, we will not, we will keep you blind and you will not be able to see uh, what we're doing. So we're seeing an element of blackmail throughout this negotiation process. And it's, it's happening right now as we speak. I mean, this, this extension was just announced today. Um, you know, also remember that the IAEA uh, head director said a few days ago that there are no countries that enrich uranium 60% or 63%. Uh, without going for a nuclear uh, a weapon. So it is, it is very clear what is, what is happening and it's, it's a big challenge and, uh, and, and we have to face it. We have to face it with facts. Um, but uh, you know, uh, again, to the, to the question of what needs to be done is we, we, we need to be strong. We need to understand strategically how to connect these dots. Um, a regional multi-front campaign in the Middle East plays into the hands of the Iranian regime, which is why they're playing this up. Normalization is a major threat, which is why we need to encourage it. We need to help countries like Egypt, which, by the way, is in a, in a much better place now as a result of the ceasefire talks in, 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 uh, in Gaza. And the administration is now adopting, you know, the Egyptians as partners. And, and we believe this, the same needs to happen with Saudi Arabia and other countries. Uh, and, and pay attention to the fact that they've been 
very quiet uh, during these 11 days. And in fact, some of them have come out very publicly against uh, the radicals in the Middle East, even, even right now. So this is not a lost battle. Thank you. Uh, in your opinion, what are the enduring shared interests between the people of Iran and the people of Israel? I love that question because, you know, if you look at the, at the, at the ancient history, not just the ancient history, but the history even during the Holocaust when Iranian diplomats at the time uh, were, were involved in saving Jews in, in Europe, and you look at uh, the first years of the Jewish state and, and, and Iran up until uh, the revolution, the Islamic revolution, uh, and how closely the two countries were, not just in the military realm, but also in terms of infrastructure projects, water, um, uh, you know, uh, public, public uh, uh, infrastructure in, in the big cities, uh, the potential has always been there. And this is not, there is a historic friendship between the Jewish people and the Iranian people. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, and, e and even a friendship in, in modern history that we can go back to. We see this period as an aberration. It is not a period that, that can possibly continue into the extended future. Unfortunately, it's still with us because of these international conditions that enable it to continue, uh, but it's an aberration. This kind of regime uh, does not represent the Iranian people and it does not represent the future of the Middle East or the connections between uh, Israel uh, and Iran that should be there for the betterment of the region. We coincidentally had uh, Victoria Coates and um, Len Kudorkovsky on, on this show, on my podcast, uh, to talk about um, what they propose as the Cyrus Accords, uh, which is a take on the Abraham Accords, but would be between the people of Israel and the people of Iran in the future uh, to basically, you know, bring back a lot of these um, shared interests and values and the sentiment uh, that you call upon. What have you thought? Have you heard about the, the Cyrus Accords? And I wanted to just get your thoughts on that. I have, and I think it's a wonderful idea. Uh, and we know uh, from very careful polling in Iran that if there's a democratic society in the Middle East, it's the Iranian people. Uh, and the gaps between the regime and the sentiment uh, of, of everyday people in, in Iran is, is enormous. And, and that is a gap that, that uh, you know, we should be aware of. Uh, and the potential is very much there uh, to do more. And look, we're, we're look, look at the region and look at what the challenges that the region faces into, into the future. It's about food security. Food security. It's about you know, uh, um, innovation. It's about water management. And we know that Iran is facing tremendous, tremendous uh, problems on all of these fronts and that Israel has become uh, over the last decades a major world uh, center of solutions, uh, first and foremost for the Middle East and the, the potential to partner with resources, with know-how, and to you know, to use Iranian scientific know-how as well, which is very, very deeply embedded, uh, and should be put to good use. There's so much that could be done to to help this region, uh, and and we should start. We should start as soon as possible. Um, why has the Democratic Party in the United States pressured the? carrot and stick policy of destabilization in the Middle East. This disastrous policy has opened the way for the appearance of China in the international scene as the new colonizing power. So we have not spoken about China today and we should because, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about the Democratic Party in a moment, but it is important to, to note that uh, China announced and Iran has announced a major strategic agreement, $400 billion over 25 years by my calculation, that's $16 billion a year that China would invest in Iran. That's all oh, well and good. The only problem is that China has never invested that 
kind of money even in the United States, let alone in Iran. And Iran doesn't has never even absorbed uh, that kind of international uh, uh, investment mm-hmm. uh, before. So much of it is symbolic, uh, but it does translate into uh, you know defiance of the international community, defiance of the sanctions regime. Uh, you know, purchasing more Iranian oil. Uh, providing Iran politically and strategically with more backing, which which is very very unfortunate. Um, so uh, you know we don't see uh, China as an immediate uh, threat, but it's a threat that needs to be uh, obviously uh, monitored very carefully. Uh, and again, any you know ability to uh, you know isolate this regime uh, will be very helpful. Uh, all of these uh, you know theatrics about you know helping this regime. Um, it just makes the situation that much worse. No, um... so, uh, I'm sorry. So about the Democratic Party, look, so, so this is all in process. By and large, you know, uh, what we're seeing out of the White House um, is, is mixed. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we're, we are concerned about, you know, the loss of a sense of bipartisan support in the United States for this. And certainly on the part of the harder um, Progressive uh, uh, elements in the party. It's not the entire party. There are still very strong friends uh, in the party, but uh, they need they need support and they need encouragement. And the minority is very loud and very dangerous. You know, and th- I guess my my question is actually a follow up of that. Um, you know, how how do we bring this sentiment back to Washington, whether it's, you know, in strengthening APAC uh, to have that pro-Israel lobby or more, you know, more importantly, actually more pressingly, uh, not more importantly, but more pressingly, um, how do, you know, well-intentioned freedom-seeking Iranians who are, many of them being on this call, brilliant, brilliant scholars and experts in the region, uh, get their voices heard? All we're hearing, especially in this administration, are groups like, you know, NIAC, who are very much for the regime that are, you know, they're, they're basically the mullahs working in Washington, D.C. and getting a formal seat at the table. Uh, how do people, you know, using your diplomatic uh, experiences, how do well-intentioned people get a voice? Well, thank you for that question. And it's so very important. And, and first, it comes from, from passionate people who believe in a cause and then helping them channel that belief into political action. Uh, and political action must be uh, taken and it, it, it has to be done professionally. And in the end, it's about you know the structures that we have, the organizations that we have, and the reach that we have, the access that we have, high officials. Uh, what we do in Europe, and, and there are 36 countries there, 27 in the EU, but 36 overall, is reach them, bring them to you, uh, educate them, engage them, build relations of trust with them. And then whatever happens on Twitter becomes background noise because it's all about the trust in the relationship. So I, I would urge all of you to continue doing what you're doing to strengthen this organization and this process uh, and every organization that you believe is, 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 is moving our cause forward. Well, thank you. I know um, from our perspective, the uh, Institute for Voices of Liberty does exactly that. It gives the voices of people in Iran, gives them an echo, gives them a platform um, similar to the New Iran and so many of, of these other organizations. Uh, Ambassador Siegel, I want to thank you for your time. I want to um, encourage you all that after this uh, Zoom uh, discussion is over, we will have this as a, as a podcast and as a video on YouTube. I encourage you to share it with your friends and family. This is uh, very important information. I think 
people need to have the tools and knowledge uh, to combat these threats uh, and uh, we need to unite. So thank you, Ambassador, for, for giving us uh, so much of your time and knowledge. Uh, and I also wanna thank from the Institute of Voices of Liberty, of course, Mr. Bijan Kian, uh, Mr. Sam Kermanian, Mr. Bezad Sarem, uh, Shima Kabasi, who uh, was very integral in, in helping us uh, with this, Dr. Iman Furutan, and members of the board of directors at the New Iran. I want to thank you all for participating. And I actually um, want to call back in uh, Mr. Bijan Kian for some closing remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Ambassador Siegel, for educating us today about the reality that is getting distorted these days. Uh, I started talking about how America seems to be, and, and not all of America, but certain elements in the Democratic Party seem to be uh, treating our enemies like friends and treating our friends like enemies. And this is very confusing. A very dear friend of us, Adam Lovinger, who may be on the line today, said uh, recently said, whenever there's been a daylight between Israel and the United States, we have seen escalations of these kinds of violations and encouragements by the terrorist groups. But we also observe the same at the Institute for Voices of Liberty, as we are just about to announce our birth, our existence, uh, we felt that it is our responsibility. You mentioned, uh, you referred to Abdul Hussein Sardar, Iranian diplomat who earned the uh, nickname of uh, Iranian Oscar Schindler during the war. And uh, we also have distinguished members of our advisory council, Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt, who I know the history. He is in my heart, my book, uh, also uh, the Oscar Schindler to the Iranian community during a very turbulent time. So on both sides, we have individuals who are remembered forever. But in these days where truth is being distorted, and at best, only half of it is reported by major media. The Institute felt responsible that we can't just stay silent. We can't stay on the sidelines and be overwhelmed by this propaganda that is being propagated by a terrorist group, the Hamas. The war is between the Islamic Republic and Israel. We all know it. We grew up there. We know the culture. The uh, Islamic Republic leaders don't have the courage to stand up and say, we want to fight. They always send their proxies, and this is no different. This time is the same. The Institute felt that it was important to take sides in this war, that there is a war between Islamic Republic in Iran, and Mr. Ambassador, we do distinguish between Islamic Republic, a 42-year-old juvenile delinquent, and Iran, a country with ancient history, thousands of years of civilization. So this criminal element inside Iran is waging war against a people who are surrounded by enemies and facing an existential threat every day. We felt it's important we stand up and show support. Our friends asked and we uh, responded. We have uh, the Institute for Voices of Liberty is, is uh, organizing and sponsoring a mission, a public diplomacy mission to Israel. Uh, in the next uh, few days, we've received uh, cooperation we're very grateful to all friends who are helping us with this. And it's important for us to say that to those who say, what is it, the business of Institute for Voices of Liberty, to start its work by mission to Israel, we say to them, think again, think again. We cannot afford 
to stay silent. Remember the last time the world remained silent. We are not going to be silent. The advisors, the trustees, members of the board of directors, of all are supporting from all angles of the organization this mission to Israel. And I just wanted to have a moment to again thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for educating us today. And we're looking forward to visiting Israel, looking at the truth, coming back, and hopefully ordinary people, ordinary people who have no axe to the grind to come back and report the truth of what is happening there. This is not a war between Palestinians and Israelis. It's a war between Hamas and Israel financed by the Islamic Republic in Iran. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for being with us today. It was an honor to have you. Back to you, Lisa. Thank you all for participating. Thank you, Ambassador Siegel. I wish you all a wonderful day and uh, hope to see you here next time for our podcast. You can go to youtube.com uh, slash Lisa Daftari to subscribe and to go to our website, foreigndeskviews.com to sign up for our daily top 10 email. Thank you all. See you next time.